If you believe that God is good, would you say amen? Yes. You know, not everybody can say that, right? Um, people going through difficult circumstances question the goodness of God. And maybe that's you this morning. You're going through a hard time and you're wondering, how come I can't see God in the midst of this? I'm going to help you this morning with that. In Genesis chapter 3, we're going to examine God working in the midst of trauma. And I'm going to ask you, if you have a Bible, maybe electronically or hard copy, you also find a hard copy in front of you in the seat rack where you're at if you want to do it that way, or you can follow along on the screen in a minute. Um, before we get into that, I would love to pray with you, but I just want to remind you that Kathleen Anderson that you saw on the video this morning, she's here this morning and she'll be out in the atrium to talk with you if you'd like to. Our kids were involved in Barakel. One of our daughters actually served on staff there. It's a great place and I think you would enjoy it very much and you'll love to talk to Kathleen. So catch her in the atrium if you can after the service and just encourage her. Before we get into Genesis 3, let me ask you to pray with me. Would you join me in that? Father, we would readily acknowledge that um, in our best of days, it's easy to say that you are good and that you're for us and that nothing could be against us. But when we're going through the hardest of days, it feels like you're not for us and lots of things can be against us. And we listen to the voices surrounding us rather than what you declare. So I would pray, Father, that in the midst of this time when we're examining your word this morning, that what you declare would be the things that stay with us loudly, louder than the voices that surround us that tell us we should be despairing. I pray, Father, that you would encourage. That's what I'm asking for. And we pray for that through the power of the work of the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, and all God's people said, Amen. A major contractor won a project, a $300 million project. In order to pull off his project, he had to invite subcontractors to come alongside him. And so he sent out the invitation for bids, individuals who own companies that would come alongside, help him pull off this major construction project. He oversaw a giant corporation. And so he gave a deadline, and he told the subcontractors a certain date they had to have their sealed bids in by. Everything was to remain a secret. The last day that the bids were due, one final remaining subcontractor came in to see him. And when he arrived at the office, he was surprised to see no one in the lobby. And he made his way to the secretariat area, and there was no one there. He went through the assistance room. There was no one there. But he knew the CEO... And so he just went to his office and knocked on his door. And when he knocked on his door, the door swung wide open. And to his surprise, there was no one in the CEO's office. But they were good friends, so he just kind of walked towards the desk. And he stood there in awe of this giant mahogany desk in the midst of this room with hardwood floors. And to his surprise, he saw the bid of his nearest competitor sitting on the desk of the CEO. But as he walked a little closer, he realized that that's not even sealed. It's been opened, and it's sitting right there. The only problem was there was a can of soda pop sitting in the middle of the bid, right where the final number was recorded. He's thinking in his mind, if I could just move that can, 
I could see what his bid is, and then I would win the multi-million dollar subcontracting project, and I would keep my employees involved. And, and he thought, no, I can't go there. I can't do that. And he's looking around the room and noticing that there's no one in the room. And so he begins pacing nervously back and forth, thinking, what should I do? How should I approach this? He walks over to the can and twists his hand on the can and thinks, oh, no, I can't. I can't do that, and steps back. And he looks around, and he, he can't hear anybody out in the outer rooms, nobody walking towards him. Walks to the can one more time, puts his hand on it, and pulls his hand back, thinking, no, I can't do that. One last time, very quickly, he walks up, puts his hand on the can, and pulls the can away intentionally just to look very quickly at the number and then put it back. But to his horror and his amazement, as he picks up the can, hundreds and hundreds of BBs begin spilling out, <laughs> bouncing off the surface of the desk, all across the hardwood floor. And to his shock, there was nothing he could do to undo it. He'd been caught. There's no way to put the can back together again. What's he supposed to do in that moment? The can was not what it appeared to be, and his deception was uncovered. The contractor entered into that circumstance thinking that he could control the outcome, the outcome of his deceit, but he didn't know about the law of unintended consequences in that moment did not anticipate what would take over. And that's exactly what happened to Adam and Eve in the betrayal that we saw last week that we're going to dive into again this morning. Adam and Eve believed that they could control the circumstances, and they put in motion an avalanche of BBs as a result of their deception, their rebellion. And every day... You live with the consequences of it. I don't know what pain you're going through right now, physical, emotional trauma, what kind of struggle you might have had this last week, things that you did not anticipate coming in the midst of your week. You're experiencing all the time the rebellion that's taken place in our world. You live every day with the consequences. Chapter 3 of Genesis defines for us why this world is the way that it is right now in 2022. The reason why we deal with the things that we deal with. Why things are the way that they are today. And it helps us understand why there has to be a plan of salvation. And why there has to be a sacrifice for sin. If you're new to church, you especially need to know this. Know that when you read the book of Genesis and you see the fall of humanity... The fall of humanity did not catch God by surprise. He already knew from eternity past that there would have to be a plan put in place. There would need to be a purpose to restore that which had been lost. Let me take you to a passage that speaks of that. You'll see it on the screen, 2 Timothy 1.9. This is an, an echo of what I've just said. God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling... Not according to our works, but according to His own purpose, note that, to His purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, from before this planet was ever built, 
from all eternity, somewhere in eternity past, before the birds flew in the sky and before the fish were in the water, there was a plan laid out by God to fulfill God's purposes, which is an absolute mystery to us. Why would he go ahead and do this if he knew it's part of the purposes of God? And the purpose would be to redeem the human race, Paul writes to Timothy, in Christ Jesus. Meaning before this world even existed, God had put a plan in place with the God ahead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit to redeem us because our paradise would be lost. We live with it today. It's now lost because of the events of Genesis chapter 3, and it begins with this temptation. And the temptation was to challenge God's Word. And the challenge sounded like this, did God really say... And Eve enters into a discussion. You see this particular verse from verse 2. Here's her response. When Satan said, did God really say? Her response was, the woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden, we may eat. And Eve enters into a debate over the validity of God's clear word. And from this moment, Satan has her. Whenever you entertain the thought that you are stronger than the temptation that is in front of you, you are vulnerable. And Satan knew that. So it's very subtle. And this is the way it comes across from him. Come on. Come on. There's nothing wrong with exploring this just a little bit, is there? Let's, let's just talk about how you feel. Did God really say that? When I was a young married man, um, I don't think we'd been married maybe a year or two years, I was in a conversation with a friend who I knew was a Christ follower. And where we were at in this particular setting, it was kind of a metro area, and while we were talking, a, a beautiful woman walked by. And he began making comments about her, loud enough for her to hear, but really inappropriate statements, things that he should never have been saying. And he's a married man. And I knew that he was a Christ follower. So it set me back a little bit, and I said after she walked past, what, what are you doing? Why are you even thinking that way? And as I spoke to him about his comments, his response to me was, Mark, come on. It doesn't hurt to walk through the forest as long as I don't climb the trees. Okay, there's a mindset. There's a mindset behind that that I can explore. The thought was he could go there. And that thought process marked me as a young man because I knew in my heart he was totally wrong. And unfortunately, it, it proved to be true. It, it, those kind of thoughts lead to absolute devastation. In his case, it did. His marriage collapsed a few years later because he had that mindset that he could go there. Eve has found herself entertaining a very similar situation. She's having conversations she has no business entertaining. Because this debate, it was designed to cast doubt on the reliability of the Word of God. And it led to this really aggressive and brash challenge to reject what God had already declared. You remember that from chapter 2. God had made it very, very clear. Look with me. Verse 16. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree, and I'm going to bear down on the thought of the tree in a minute, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil... You shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. So what God declared is really, really clear 
a prohibition, very specific, against a specific action, and the clarity of the issue is so precise, Eve's not confused. She can repeat it right back to Satan and say, this we can do and this we cannot do. She's not muddied in this way. So verse 2, her response is, the woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden, we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden... God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. However, what God makes really, really clear in our world, Satan attempts to make a matter of debate. So Satan says, did God really say that you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? Now, notice how subtle the twist is. God never said that you couldn't eat of any tree. He only said one. Satan twisted it to say, any tree. In reality, God banned one tree, not all trees. Why did he even do that? We're going to go there in just a second. Satan's strategy is to subject God's word to debate, to human judgment, to make us the arbiter or the judge in order to get her to believe that she is not what God has said that she is. Anybody here struggle with that, that you are not what God has said you are? You hear the whisper of Satan in your life? Mind you, God has already declared that all of his creation is very good. In other words, complete. And he declared it perfect. But Satan has come along and said, no, you're really not that complete. You're not as good as you think you are. You have something you're lacking in your life. None of us struggle with that, do we? None of us face that issue. Even though our God is for us, even though our God is with us, we struggle with that thought that we're lacking some things. So the first question in the Bible is used to launch an attack against the humans, intending to create doubt in the mind about God's Word. So here's the strategy. Satan is seeking to make muddy the very thing that God has made clear. And where God speaks with boundless clarity, Satan, the usurper, seeks to make the water really muddy. Hear this, New Hope. God is not the author of confusion. Okay, I'll just wait for the people maybe watching church virtually to say amen. You guys are with me, right? Okay. Church, God is not the author of confusion. He's the one who brings order out of chaos he doesn't leave us confused. Scripture says that, 1 Corinthians 14, 33, for God is not the author of confusion. Couldn't be any more clear than that. But Satan designs his strategies to bring a looseness to the Word of God. However, Eve has just demonstrated she clearly understands the precision of what God had said, one tree not to be touched, not to be turned into an item of desire, but instead to be an item of I'll use the word respect. There's that one. And there's no doubt in Eve's mind as to the meaning. Don't go after that one thing in your life that you think you're lacking. And she knows the penalty. The penalty will be death if you do. So the challenge has been thrown down. And the challenge is, do you actually think, do you really believe that God wants good for you? Are you buying into that? I mean, look at the things in your life that you don't have. Do you really think he wants good for you? Even though God says all things work together for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. 
Satan shows up and says, yeah, not true. I personally, I firmly and wholeheartedly understand Satan in this moment today, in 2022, is actively engaged in working to cause the highest of his creation, you. Satan is working to cause the highest of God's creation on this planet to defy God's word. I want you to consider the tree for a moment. Maybe you've come up against this issue, the tree, and you wonder why it's there. Allow me to digress with you for just a moment. Not a rabbit trail. I just digress slightly. The tree is at the center of the garden. Why? Is this some cosmic strategy on God's part? Is he trying to set humans up to fall? Maybe you thought that. Why is this thing not locked away? Why is it not in some distant corner? Why is it in the very center of the garden? Looks like God wants them to fall. Well, certainly not. Scripture is very, very clear that God does not tempt and He cannot be tempted. James 1 speaks specifically to that. God is not tempted, nor will He tempt you. That doesn't come from God. That, that would be sin. So how do I understand this? Is this to give a choice? Well, in the larger picture, yep, choice is there. Choice is certainly involved. It's a factor. But we really want to be careful to not oversimplify such a massive aspect of this greatest drama to ever unfold regarding the fate of humanity. How do I understand this? How do I reconcile this tree at the very center of the most significant stage of all human drama? I would pose this to you. Adam and Eve do not look at this tree the way that you look at this tree. They're not looking at this tree through fallen eyes, they're looking at it through unfallen eyes. They haven't known sin. They only know perfection. So they're looking at it through perfect, non-sinning eyes. So I would propose to you that this sign here, this tree, is actually a sign post, something that they could take and look to and see God in it. Let me compare this for you. I'm going to compare it to what you think of when you see a capital building in a city or perhaps the image or the symbol of the cross. Think about a capital building first. Capital buildings are always put in the center of the city, in the town square. We have one downtown Lansing. It's the capital of our entire state. What does a capital building do? It reminds everybody, every citizen within the realm that there is a system of governance here. There is law and order. It reminds us of our identity. It reminds us of what we belong to, what we're part of. What does a cross do for you, the symbol of the cross, in the exact same way? It reminds everyone who belongs to Christ Jesus of who they belong to. It reminds them of what happened on the cross. It reminds them of who they are because of the work of the cross of Jesus. It's like the communion elements. If you were here last week, we took communion. You picked up the bread. You picked up the cup. You were reminded in that moment of what Jesus did for you. And at the same time, you had a really clear reminder. Paul gave the warning to reject any idea of independence from God. So I would encourage you when you think of this tree, think of it this way. 
Remember, God did not put the tree in the garden to be seen by fallen creation, but rather by unfallen creation, to be revered as a symbol of something greater than themselves, something that was bigger than them. That's why it's not locked away in some back corner, because the tree symbolizes something. It reminds them that they're not the source of all knowledge, that God is. God is the source of good. God certainly knows evil, not in the way that you and I know it, because we know it from inside. We know it like a cancer patient eating us up. But God knows evil from the outside, and He knows what it does, and He knows how it can destroy. I would suggest to you that this temptation that was brought to them is very, very clever. The temptation Satan presents at its core is a temptation to develop their own identity to achieve independence from God, in other words, to reinvent themselves as gods of their own making. You could be more than what you are right now. And this very clever temptation is designed to the nature that you and I live with today, the thing that we feel every single day, the temptation to abandon God's very clear directives in our life and chart a course of our own making. And it's very old, and it's been around since the beginning of time, God says my identity is found in Him, and who He says I am is who I am. But the temptation is to find a new identity. I can have my own self-designed identity. If I don't like my spouse, the world says, I can trade her in for a new model, and I can get a new identity. I can get something much more exhilarating. If I don't like my gender that God assigned to me at birth, I can send myself a new identity. I can go for a new direction of my own making. See, I would suggest to you the tree is not there for evil, but it's there for good. What Satan has done is he's muddied the waters to make it appear as though it's intended to make her less than, to say, you are less than what you really are. You could be so much more if you would just do this. Every action of sin at its core is a rebellion against God's very clear design for our good, not for our harm, but Satan works over time to twist that and pervert it. And with Eve, it worked. Verse 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was desirable to make one's wise, she took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. And in the moment that they believe something other than God, we are doomed in 2022. We're going to suffer the fallout of this. So with explosive concussion force, our once perfect world is filled with perversion. They're drenched in sin. The stink drips from them. They reek of corruption. And from that single act of picking up the soda can, and all the BBs come spilling out. Sin crushes upon our world, and it infects the entire planet like a virus that will not go away. Anybody identify with that? We know what that is. Pay very close attention. They did not commit robbery. They did not murder. There's no anger. There's no malice. There's not even vile words used. 
To be sure, those things are all sinful behaviors. Sin is found in those things. It produces those things. But what we are told separates mankind from God. The very first sin fostering all the other sin that we know of in our world, it's the action of not believing God's word, not taking seriously what God said. And that's the very thing that still keeps people to this day separated from their creator. So rather, they believe the lie of Satan, and by believing that, they are not complete in God. They attempt to fill this perceived void with something other than God, and here's what it leads to. Curses. There's three of them. We're going to dive into one of them this morning. We can't get to all three of them. We'll just do this one right here. We'll run out of time if we try and do the all, all of them. But in the midst of their sin, hear this, this is what they do. They don't turn to God. They run and hide, and no one has to tell them they don't qualify anymore. They instinctively know. So because of guilt, they run. Verse 9. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And we discussed last week that the immediate instinct that humans have in moments like this is to blame. And the conversation becomes dark and evasive and it tells us everything we need to know about human depravity. Because no longer is holiness in them. It's gone. The sin of Adam and Eve gave a certain power to Satan. Because now, in this moment in time here, he's become the God of this age. Jesus calls him the prince and the power of the air, the ruler of this world. So going forward from this moment, he will have a measure of dominion over these now fallen humans. And to this very day, he holds something over the unsaved. Those who don't yet know Jesus... He holds a power of the fear of death. And individuals live with it every single day, all their lives, as a ruler, if you will, over fallen humanity. But please remember this, church. Sin does not threaten God's sovereignty. I know you just want to say amen to that. I can feel it. It's like oozing out of you. God is still on the throne. See, here's how you see it. In the immediate pronouncement of the curses, you're going to see one of them right now. Because the curse is a representation of his authority. He still has authority over them. He's no less sovereign. He's no less sovereign over a fallen world than he is over an unfallen world. He's no less sovereign over Satan. He's no less sovereign over Adam and Eve before their fall than he is after their fall. The almighty God is not a victim of sin and not a victim of Satan. God is still God and God is still on the throne. That's your God. Therefore, the almighty God, the ruler of the universe, has to step in with an immediate verdict. 
and pronounce a judgment over what has happened here. So immediately and deliberately, he responds with this judgment in the form of curses. Verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all the cattle, bear down on the word more, and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. Pause right there. The first curse, the beginning of it, is actually on a real animal, on a reptile. Mind you this, even though an animal has no sense of sin, even though when one of our puppies ate up my fishing rod, I thought it had sin in its life. I was pretty sure. But animals don't have a sense of sin. They don't know that. This reptile has simply been a tool of Satan, but God curses this animal even though the animal is not necessarily a willing tool, and it's really important to know why. Why does that appear here in the story? Well, cursing this serpent actually serves a purpose, and so God says, cursed are you more than all the cattle and more than all the beasts of the field. If you don't know the Bible, know this, all the animals of the created world suffer the results of the fall. They all feel the effect of God cursing the ground. It's not their fault. When God create, cursed the created order, they dealt with the circumstances of it. So God cursed the serpent more than all the cattle and more than all the beasts. Well, we discussed a few weeks ago that cattle is actually a representation of the domestic animals, everything from sheep to horses. But the beast of the field, that's the undomesticated animals, those that are wild. But they've all been subjected to futility. But of all the animals, the serpent is cursed more. So all animals will now decay. They will age. They will get disease. And if you've ever lost a pet, you know the pain when they die. You feel that. It's all part of this. Romans 8 says, the whole creation groans. Look with me at this. Romans 8, verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him, him meaning God, not Satan, but because of God who subjected it in hope. Not like I hope it's going to happen, but in future looking. In hope that the creation itself also will be set free from slavery, its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Catch 22. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Because of the fall, all of the universe feels the effect of sin. And it isn't the fault of the animals. It isn't the fault of the soil or of the plants or of the stars. They're not responsible, but they've been subjected to futility because of the curse. And they're suffering the birth pangs. You know what that is if you've ever gone through labor or you've watched someone else go through labor, waiting for the moment of release. So what's the deal with the curse on the serpent? Placing the curse more than on the serpent turns it into a symbol. It becomes this constant reminder of the degradation of Satan. So the Bible says Satan is a usurper. He becomes synonymous with a symbol of a slithering serpent. Revelation chapter 12 and chapter 20 actually call him out by name that way. Look with me at this. Verse 9, the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. 
Or Revelation 20, verse 2, he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan. So God curses, and forever after, it's a perpetual image of Satan and the devastation that he brings. Now, set that one aside. Before God goes any further with the curses, wedged into the three curses between verses 14 and verses 19 comes verse 15. We started this morning by talking about the promise of God, the purposes of God, the plan of God to bring about salvation. When that promise arrives, it changes everything. So catch this. This is stunning. Before God ever goes forward with any more curses on mankind, and that's what we're going to get into next week, the curse on men and the curse on women. Before he ever does that, he delivers a hope for a better future. Go back with me just a few minutes to what we started with. Second. Timothy 1.9, God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. God's got a purpose in all of this. He's going to bring everything back into alignment. So God points to the future as he turns his laser focus specifically on the one acting behind the serpent, the fallen angel who concocted this entire scheme. God bears down in verse 15 and watch the change in language. And. God's got to change here. And. Because he's speaking specifically to this being now. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. And you find all the way back in Genesis 3, the prophecy of God expressed by God himself in prophetic form. So let me just explain to you what you just read. This might be completely new to you. The prophecy is of a future fulfillment of the eternal plan for Jesus to come to this planet. And it begins all the way back here in Genesis chapter 3. Very first prophecy of Jesus and his arrival occurs within the context of the fall, which totally makes sense. Because if there hadn't been a fall and sin hadn't entered the world, there would be no need for a Redeemer Messiah. So God turns to this fallen angel and says, I will put enmity, and he's speaking specifically of Satan. He's the focus of this judgment, and the enmity spoken of here will be a deep-seated hostility between the two powers that are represented in the curse, and it will stand for all time because of the treacherous work of Satan, and it extends out to the seed of the woman. Seed, in this context, is the offspring. So there's a Hebrew word in your notes this morning. We only have two of them, and here's the first one. The next one will come in just a moment. Zarah. What is is Zarah? To to disseminate something, to plant. If you're a farmer, you put seed in the ground, you know what it is to get a crop back. Same thought that's going on here, but this is speaking of a child. The posterity. And God says between your seed, your Zarah, and her Zarah, her seed. What's the seed of the woman? With the seed of the woman, it looks forward to a time when Jesus will come, the arrival of the one born of a virgin, and the seed of the serpent. Well, this is the Antichrist. 
This is the very first prophecy of Jesus' arrival, and right out of the gate, God is making himself completely clear that the descent, the genealogy of the Messiah is going to be through the line of a woman. This is extraordinary, not a man. This is not only extraordinary because of the statement, but because it's outside the biblical norm. If you go to Genesis 5 right now, you'll find the very first genealogy stated, which is the descent of men from men. When the Bible lists genealogy, it always lists the son of, the son of, the son of, the son of, and it lists the father, the father, the father. It it doesn't ever list the women. They're a list of men's names. Here's why. Because the genealogy, the legal descent, the tribal identity, the national identity always comes from the father's side, not the mother. That God directed Moses to write this detail here tells us there's something extraordinary happening here. That this exceptional arrival of this future Messiah is so remarkable, it's necessary to trace his ancestry through his mother, not his father, because he's not going to have an earthly father. There won't be one to record it from, but there's no explanation of here. None is given until hundreds of years go by. And Isaiah comes on the scene in Isaiah chapter 7, and we think he's writing a Christmas verse. He writes this, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name God with us, Emmanuel, because there's no earthly father. This is extraordinary from the mouth of God. Now keep going. Let's finish the curse out in verse 15. What is going to happen as a result of this one who's coming? He, the one who's coming from the seed of the woman, shall bruise you on the head, Satan, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Mind you, God is still speaking to the one behind the serpent, the usurper, this one who has brought all this damage. And he uses this word, this Hebrew word, second one, last one, shuf. He's going to crush you, Satan. This one who is coming is going to overwhelm and not just bruise and not just break, but destroy you. So God is promising this one who will be born of a virgin, this future Messiah, will crush the head of the serpent. In the process, Satan will bruise and wound Jesus' heel. But Satan will, he will receive a crushing of the head as a result. In other words, total destruction. A a wound to the heel won't destroy you, but a wound to the head, that's fatal. The bruising of Jesus' heel takes place at the crucifixion. There's a physical death. There's the torture, there's the scourging, and biologically he dies. But there is not an eternal sense of this being fatal. But the crushing of Satan, it also begins at the crucifixion. And the bruising is going to result. The bruising of Jesus is going to result in the death. And it will be excruciatingly painful. But death, Satan didn't see this unintended consequence coming. He didn't know that death would be swallowed up in victory. He didn't know that there would be a resurrection of this one that he would be bruising. Go with me to Hebrews 2. Hebrews 2, 14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. Watch. 
that through death, speaking of Jesus, he might render powerless him, speaking of Satan, who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Are you afraid of death this morning? Do you know someone who is? It's the freaking king of fear. It captivated our world over these last two years. It crushed people's spirits. The Bible knows what it's talking about when it says death reigns as a ruler over this planet. God says for those who are in me, you don't have to have any fear of death. There's no sting, Paul writes. The stinger has been removed. Are you afraid of death this morning? You don't need to be because of Jesus Christ our Lord. Because Jesus was born of the seed of a woman. Born of God. And he came and he obliterated death. So Paul writes, so death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? Well, there's no longer a sting if you're in Jesus Christ our Lord. I want to finish today just by reading the other two curses. Just so you know what's coming next week. Because what you see, and this is very dark and it's very, very sad, but there is so much hope within it. Watch. Verse 16, to the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. To which every woman said, thanks, Eve. (laughs) In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Verse 17. Then to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Verse 18, both thorns and thistles that shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, from you, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And wedged in between verses 15 and 21, the promise of God's purposes is revealed. The eternal purposes that there would be one coming from the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. And by the time you get to verse 21, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, grace appears on the scene. I showed this to you last week, verse 20. But the man called his wife named Eve, and because she was the mother of all the living, verse 21, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. And I told you last week, for God to do that. He had to kill an animal. It's the very first death in the Bible. He had to kill the animal in order to harvest the skin, and there had to be a shedding of blood in order to deal with their sin. For this reason, because you and I are not capable of capturing and putting back all the BBs that have fallen from the can, and they're spilling across the floor of our life, and it's too big of a mess. We've all been caught. Scripture says there's none of us without sin. We all have it. But Jesus, 
the owner of the world's largest construction company, the owner of everything, arrives on the scene and he treats the entire episode as though it never happened if we are in him. He shows up on the scene, and if you're in Jesus Christ, he says to you, what BBs? I don't see any BBs. What I see is my righteousness on you. I see that I've forgiven you of your sin. If you believe and you are in Christ Jesus our Lord, he has wiped out your sin as far as the east is from the west and remembers them no more, Scripture says. That's who you are. Regardless of the voices around you and what you're being told, he willingly has clothed you with a permanent righteousness, not of your own making, but of his making. And therefore, you gained a truly new identity in Jesus. I know you're just dying to say amen to that. How could you not? He's for you. He's not against you. Satan wants you to believe that he's against you. Now, to wrap this up, fascinatingly enough, it, it, it wraps up with such an interesting twist. We're not going to get into it this morning. This will set you up for next week. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Verse 23, Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out, and at the east of the garden of Eden he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned in every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Ooh, that sounds interesting. We'll save it for next week. I want to ask you to do everything you can this week to crowd out the voices that tell you you're not good enough, that you've got too much sin and too much failure. Because God says, I see you, and I sent my son to die for you, and I see you as perfect, righteous, and holy. So I implore you to go out and live like that. Let's pray. Father, I ask that that would be true of us. Our difficulty, as we acknowledged in the beginning, is that over and over and over again, we need to be reminded of it. Remind us of how you see us and what you've done for us and the great lengths you went to to rescue us. Thank you, Father, for giving us insight through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now send us out with your blessing on us, and your blessing would be that we could speak into the lives of other people, that they could remember and learn who they could be in you. Use us as a voice to this world. God, I pray for this in Jesus' majestic name and all God's people said, amen.